We are blessed. Greg, thank you for you and those that serve with you. You all lead us in worship every single Sunday morning. I'm so grateful for you being here. I know that there are many right now um, that are um, dealing with effects or ramifications, I guess, or the results of COVID or just uh, staying home out of precautions. And so we definitely want to think about those and definitely want to remember those that are here or those that are um, being safe. Um, definitely when we come together, we need to be mindful of one another and uh, consider one another as we come together. And then I know there are some that are even um, still looking for Bambi. And so we hope that their efforts uh, will come to fruition soon so they can get back and join us uh, as soon as as possible. So I appreciate you all being here this morning. Thank you all so much for joining us here and for maybe those of you that are joining us um, online. We're just grateful that we have a chance to gather in church this morning. It was brought up during Sunday school about the ongoing litigation, the ongoing legal cases that are going on all throughout our country having to do with the freedom of churches to assemble. Um, it's been going on for some time on the different coasts where there are being restrictions placed upon churches of how they can meet, if they can meet, when they can meet. And uh, I think sometimes we forget talking about the thankfulness and thank, being, uh, uh, being forgetful that we have a, definitely a reason to be thankful that we can gather as people of God to worship God freely and open without the fear of persecution, the fear of hindrance, and, and the fear of any kind of uh, opposition from our government or our community. Just the fact that we get to come together and to worship together is a, is a great thing to be thankful for. I hope when you came in you caught a copy of the bulletin. There will be some notes in the back of that if you want to use that during our time together. In the word this morning, and we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, as we continue walking through this letter of Ephesians, this letter of Paul to the church that is there in Ephesus. And so we are at chapter 4, and we're going to be verse 1 through verse 6 this morning. But to kind of set the stage for where we're going to be at, I don't know if you know the name Scott Adams. Scott Adams was the creator, the writer, the artist behind the cartoon strip called. Dilbert. Uh, years ago, when you got the newspaper, when people actually read the physical newspaper, there was a comic strip known as Dilbert. Now, sometimes some of the humor in the Dilbert comic strip I really didn't understand, but Scott Adams was a creator of that. He also had a website, and as people would come to his website as a, as a means of experiment, he asked them, the visitors to his website one time, if they would please describe their job in just one short phrase or one sentence. And here's some of the ways that people describe their job. A pilot wrote that my job is to spend most of my day looking out the window. A security guard wrote that my job is to run away and call the police. A lifeguard said, well, my job is to ensure, ensure stupid people stay in the gene pool. I thought that was a little bit pointed, if you will, but that was the lifeguard's idea of what their job was. The student said this on the website. The student said, my job is to copy and paste things off of the internet. <laughs> More true than we realize sometimes. A, a university professor said, my job is to talk in other people's sleep. A photographer said that my job is to shoot couples on their wedding day. A real estate agent said, my job is to house people in... And then for the sake of Toby this morning, the statistician said, my job is to lie with statistics. I remember seeing one time on a sign that you can make 37.8% of anything, say anything you wanted to say. And so this idea that these people would come on and say, this is how we describe our job. 
But this morning, as we're looking at the text this morning in these next few moments, my question for us this morning is how do we describe what it is or what it means to be a Christian? More importantly than that, because I think sometimes Christian, uh, the term Christian can kind of be uh, ambiguous and uh, defined a lot of different ways. So I'm just going to define it as a believer. If we were to have to make a one-sentence description, or if we were going to have to describe what it means to be a believer, how would you and I describe what a believer is this morning? How would we describe if somebody says, are you a believer? Yes, I'm a believer. What does it mean to be a believer? And we are to sit down and try to say what it is that we believe. I'm talking to a, a young lady this last week and, and, and she said that she was a Christian. She was a follower of Jesus Christ. And I, so I asked her, I said, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? And she just kind of looked at me with this blank look on her face. And I was like, well, you know, I'm asking the question. Because everybody has a different definition. Everybody may have a different understanding. And sometimes we assume when we come in that you all think the same as me about what it means to be a believer. And you all assume that I think the same as you. So what Paul is going to do here, Paul has been writing this letter that we've been reading. He wrote this letter to Ephesus. And the, the first three chapters, if you know very much about Bible commentary, the first three chapters are set up in doctrine. Paul is writing about the doctrine to the church and saying, this is what you are supposed to do. And then you get here as you turn a corner, if you turn a, a hinge, if you will, in chapter 4, and he moves from doctrine to Application. So he's talking in the first three chapters about what you are supposed to do. And then in these next three chapters, he's going to talk about, and this is how you do it. So he's going to take the doctrine and then turn it to application. And so this morning, as he begins here in... As he begins here in chapter 4, he's going to move from saying, okay, this is what I taught you you're supposed to be. Now I'm going to teach you, this is how you do it. In other words, you see there at the top of your notes, the job description, and this is what we're going to drive to this morning, the job description of a believer is not defined by the believer, but by the creator. So he's going to say this idea that you're all gathered here in emphasis, you're all gathered here at First Baptist Church, Wilson, you're all gathered here in 2020, and you say this is what it means to be a believer. Sometimes we need to be reminded that we do not define what it means to be a believer. God does. And God has given us a definition of what it looks like. He's given us a description of what it looks like. The question is, do our lives reflect the definition of God? So everybody has a different way of describing what they do. Everybody has a different way of describing how they do it. Everybody has a different way of describing the life they live. What do you think of when you describe a Christian? So we're going to look at these first six verses. I'm going to read them for us in their entirety for the sake of context. And I want to back up. And you see there in your notes, I just want to give you three descriptions that I believe Paul points out to us. Three descriptions that should mark a believer or describe a believer this morning. So starting in chapter 4 and verse 1, this is what Paul writes. He says, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and one Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I pray that God will add application, understanding to his word this morning. 
Right here in this text, I want to point you just quickly to three different descriptions, three different descriptions that I believe should mark the believer. Paul first talks about our worthiness. He talks about your worthiness. You want to ask the question, well, what does it mean to be a believer? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? What does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to be a Christian? Paul is going to say, if you're going to ask yourself, what does it mean? You first need to understand that the first step or the first step that Paul outlines has to do with your worthiness. So he says, right there in verse 1 to walk in a manner worthy of your calling it wasn't one of those things that Paul expected us to be a certain standard it wasn't one of those things that Paul said well that's all about works it wasn't about your actions it wasn't about how you look when you come in on a Sunday morning it wasn't about your dress it wasn't about your speech it was a matter of knowing that you have been called by an almighty God and you need to walk like you've been called by an almighty God You need to look like you've been called by an almighty God. And he talks about this worthiness. And he says when you think about being a believer, it should ask the question, what does my life look like? And does my life, is my life reflected of God? So he talks about some characteristics. He talks about what it means to walk worthy. Now we could spend an entire service on each one of these different characteristics, but I'm just going to walk through them quickly and then kind of point you to what this looks like. He talks about first about humility. Verse 2, he says, with all humility. Everybody understands that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking less, thinking of yourself less often. It's this idea that you, everybody knows, well, uh, you need to be humble. And I think the majority of us in the room would probably say, well, yeah, Spence, I'm humble. I'm humble. Everybody's humble until they're not. <laughs> and everybody's humble until they get to brag. Everybody thinks that they are humble. But the reality is, is when Paul is writing here, he's saying that you believers, you should make sure that humility is something that people know you for. But we are living in a day and age that humility is something that we project, but it's nothing, not something that we possess. i give you another idea there in your notes. Humility does not take credit for the grace of God. Too many times we look around and start to think about the things that I've earned, the things that I've owned, the things that I've gotten, the things that I deserve, the things that belong to me, and we forget that humility does not take credit for the grace of God. When you look around and you realize the only thing that you have is what God has given you. The only thing that you have is what God has blessed you with. The only thing that you have is what God has by his grace and mercy bestowed upon you. So he talks about your worthiness. He starts about your humility. Then he talks about your gentleness. This idea of being gentle means that you don't respond in the flesh. It's not a matter of saying, well, I gave them the past. They deserve that, but I didn't give them to them. So see how nice of a guy I was being? No, you still are having harboring ill will. You're still harboring kind of some kind of anger. You still have some type of hatred in your heart. He's saying when you are, have this gentle spirit, you're not going to respond in the flesh. And then he talks about the patience there in verse 2. Patience here in this sense is shown, not spoken. It's not one of those things you look at them and say, well, you know, I'm just really patient with them. It's something that you do. It's something that you act. We're in that stage right now, Jaylene and I, with these small children. And your patience is tested. Austin and I were talking before the service. <laughs> patience. And, and you think you have patience, and then you're just like, I don't know if I can have any more patience left. And then you start to think, I don't think I have anything more in the tank. And you're constantly being given an opportunity to practice patience. I don't participate in the Black Friday events, the bazaars, if you will. But I know that people do, and you get there, and you watch the videos, and you're like, why does anybody want 
to fight with people just to get into Walmart. I just don't understand what is the point of showing up hours before the store opens just so you can beat the next person to the item. It doesn't make sense to me, but there are people that will show up and participate in order to save money, and you're looking at it, and you're saying, that person is not being patient with that person. That person is not being patient with that person. And Paul says, when you think about a, when you think about a believer, when you think about a Christian, patience should be something that marks our life. Not only that, but he also talks about love at the last part of verse 2. And being eager to love. Bearing with one another in love is how he puts it there in verse 2. And sometimes we need to remind ourselves that love doesn't require reciprocation. Just because I love you doesn't mean you have to love me. And yet our entire world today is filled with this idea that my love for you is dependent upon your love for me. And if you stop treating me the way that I want to be treated, or if you start talk, if you stop talking to me the way that I think you should start, I think you should be talking to me. If you stop doing the things that I want you to do, that my love for you is gone. There's a need today for us to tell these young people as they are moving up and they're looking towards marriage. There's a need for us to tell them that love is more than an emotion. Love is a decision. Love is a choice. That love is something that we choose to do, we choose to keep doing, and we choose to stay doing. Not because it's always easy, not because it's always convenient, but because love is not dependent upon he or her and what they do for us. Our love is dependent upon Christ's love for us that we are showing to other people. And so he talks about this worthiness. He's talking about this idea that when we look at our lives, do we look at a life that says, I am worthy of being called a believer? beautiful thing about that is that none of us are worthy apart from Christ. And that it's not a merit of our own. It's not something that we have earned. It's not something that we deserve. And so that's what he tells us there at the last part of verse 3. He's saying eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. He wants to remind the church that we are not the source of unity. So it's not that you or myself are keeping this whole thing together. Notice right there in the text he says we are to maintain the unity of of the Spirit. In other words, what Paul is saying, that what holds the church together, that worthiness that bonds the church together, that, that, that element that brings us all together and to walk in a way worthy of the calling of Jesus Christ on our lives, it is not because of something that we have done, it's something that Christ has done for us. So many times we think that it's all about us. It's all about me. It's all about my presence. It's all about my experience. It's all about what people think about me. It's all about what I bring to the table. And Paul wants to remind the church that church, your worthiness to come and to be called a follower of Jesus Christ is not based upon your scripture memory. It's not based upon how many times you've been in church. It's not based upon how you dress. It's not based upon how you look. It's not based upon your experiences. It's not based upon how much money you give to the church. It's not based upon how much you know about the Bible stories. It's not based upon how nice of a person you are or how good you are. It's not based upon anything on you. Your worthiness to be called a believer in Jesus Christ is solely through what the Spirit is doing in you. So when we realize that my worthiness does not come from a tie, does not come from a pocket square, does not come from a, a talent to be able to play a guitar or a It's not a clavicle, it's not a Casanova, something else. Start to the C. <laughs> it's not a piano, I do know that, but it's something else. Uh, my worthiness does not come from that. My worthiness does not come from me being able to read. 
My worthiness does not come from being at a higher position and altitude than you. My, my worthiness does not come from some type of education or some type of background or some type of experience. My worthiness solely comes from Jesus Christ. And yet, brothers and sisters, so many times we neglect that. So many times we miss that. So many times we, we rush right past that and we say, well, you know what? I realize that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And then we go on and Paul would say, do not step past the point when you understand that what marks you as a believer, how you would describe yourself as a believer is not a member of a church, not a person of society, not your good deeds or your good intentions. What marks you, what describes you as a believer is what Jesus has done for you. Oh, we get past that too soon. We get over that too easy. We, 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 we skip that so often and we stop to realize that what marks me, what describes me is not me. It's the spirit inside of me. It's the savior that died for me. It's the God who sent his son for me. It's that forgiveness that I have that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. My worthiness is not based upon me. My worthiness is based upon him. But yet if you were to describe yourself and describe what it means to be a Christian... What would it say about Jesus? So I've had this conversation with this young lady this last week. and I like silence. So, so I said, well, what does, it mean to, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be saved? And she just kind of looks at me like, I, and I just look back. And there's this awkward pause. And she said, well, I, I guess because Jesus died for me. Why is that so weird? Why is that so odd? Why do we think about it like there has to be something else? Why do we look at it like there has to be something more to the story? Can you imagine what it means that a man, a sinless man, a perfect man, the son of God, came to this world and died for you? Why? Why do we think there has to be more than that? Why do we think we need more than that? Why do we think that we're not complete with, with, with just that? Why do we think there always has to be more to the story? Paul wants to remind them that when it comes to the description of what it means to believer, do not miss the point that your worthiness comes from Christ. But because you're in Christ, therefore you walk worthy of being called his. Worthy of being called a son of God. Worthy of being called a follower of Jesus Christ. I can see that really gets you excited. So let's move on to verse 4. He talks about the second thing they really get that describes the Christian. The second thing that describes what it means to be a Christian. And he talks about your oneness. Your oneness. He, he, you see there in verse 4 he says there is one body. One spirit. Just as you are called the one hope that belongs to your call. He's talking about this idea of being one. So if somebody was going to describe what it means to believe, be a believer. They're going to describe what it means to be part of a church. They're going to describe the church today. One of the ways they should be able to describe us is our oneness. Our oneness. Now it doesn't mean that our conformity that we all look the same. It doesn't mean that we all think the same. It doesn't mean that we all act the same. What it means is that we all realize that we are the same. We are all 
together. And we are one not because of our zip code, not because of our phone numbers, not because of our past experiences, not because of our incomes. We are one because of our calling is what he says there in verse 4. He realizes and he recognizes and he points them to that they are one in Christ because they have been called by one God and because they have one hope. It is one because of our hope, he says there in verse 4. You were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. It's the same thing as saying that you are one because there is only one spirit. So you are one people together. We are living in a day and age that it's all this consumer driven ideas. And you have people today that they will come and they'll take a little bit of this and they'll take a little bit of that. It's this buffet style life. They don't like this, they'll go someplace else. They don't like that, they'll do something else. My family and I, we were out on outing here uh, several weeks ago and we were in Stillwater and uh, wanted some ice cream. So we went to the orange leaf. I've got the you know frozen yogurt and all the toppings, and you get the big bowl, and you just sit up there, and you put all the toppings on there. Boy, you're just living in big town. You can do whatever you want to. And we walked into the orange leaf, and they said, do you have a mask? I do not. They said, well, sorry, we're, we're not going to serve you unless you have a mask on. Okay? So we walked out, went over there to Marble Slab Creamery. We walked in same thing well I've already got my hopes up for ice cream (laughs) so I've already been determined that I'm going to get me some ice cream so I was like well okay so orange leaf out marble creamery marble slab creamery out I know we'll go to Brahms we pulled over there at Western, and uh, I think it's 6th Street, I forget, it's been so long since I lived up there, but we pulled down there, we walked into Brahms, what can we get you? And boy, we ordered ice cream, we sat there eating ice cream, and I'm like, these are my people. <laughs> <laughs> these are my kind of people. See a guy walk in, he's got the bell spike on, see another guy drive in, he's got the cake feeder on, see another guy walk in, he's got the spurs on his boots, and I'm thinking, these are my kind of people. I felt at one with the people there in Brahms. And there should be something that should be true about all Christians, that when we walk in this place we should feel at one with one another there should be some places we should walk into that we shouldn't feel comfortable with one another we shouldn't feel comfortable being in some of those places being in some of those environments but it's one of those things that when we walk in we should recognize that we're all the same we are all sinners saved by grace we are all imperfect people in one state of maturity and growth as one another we should walk in and understand that what unites us is the spirit of God what unites us is God above us and our father father that is calling us we should understand that we are one and when we come in here there shouldn't be this awkwardness or this standoffishness or this feeling of I don't know if I fit in it should be one of those things that when we should come in we should know that these are our people and we are one together I think it's one of the unfortunate drawbacks that we are experiencing right now when it comes to this COVID situation we have many people even right now that are maybe watching us online or maybe watching us later online or maybe even listening to us later online and they will sit there and we're being taught and we're being programmed to believe that that is the same. But it's not. Vayner goes down to sell cattle and he goes into the Cowman's restaurant and he gets him a big old giant steak. He sends me a picture of the steak. That's not the same. He sends me a video of him cutting the steak and taking a bite of the steak and eating the steak and him saying, Hi Spence, wish you were here. Boy, this sure is good. It's not the same. 
Now, I realize that for some of you that are watching us online or listening to this online, I realize that your situation, your condition, I'm not trying to take light of that, but I do believe that as a church, we should never accept or never promote that being online is the same as being in person. There's some things you're not going to get online, and that has its place, and that has its point, and that has its ministry, but at the same time, we should be the kind of people that understand that when we get together, there is a oneness, there is a fellowship, there is a love, there is an encouragement, there is just something good for our soul when we get together as one people. There's something that is special when we come together as one. We're living in a day and age that people increasingly think that they can do this thing called being a Christian or being a believer in isolation. God never created us to be by ourselves. God never created us to worship by ourselves. You go back to the Old Testament and you see all of these laws that God handed down of how they worship together as a congregation. How they do this thing called church. And we need to understand that what marks a believer is not just our worthiness, it is also our oneness. So when people come in, they should be able to see that there is something different about this place. This isn't a Lions Club. This isn't a Kiwanis Club. This isn't a Moose Lodge. This isn't a Chamber of Commerce meeting. This isn't a charity event. This isn't something that takes place that you can move in a different area with a different zip code and a different name. This should be something special because people walk in and they recognize and they say, how did all these people get along? Because of what God has done in us. Because of my humility, because of my patience, because of my love, because of my unity in my heart. And then he gets to this last one. Notice this last one there in verse 5. He talks about your allness. Now I realize allness is not really a technically a, a dictionary type word, but I hope you understand. It kind of follows along with whatever we're talking, with the other stuff that we're talking about. He talks about your worthiness. He talks about your, one, your oneness. And then Paul talks about your allness. Your allness, if you will. And he, notice how he puts it here in verse 5. He says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all. And in all. He's reminding them that when it comes to what marks and describes a believer, it's not just your worthiness and your reflection and your action before Jesus. It's not your oneness and how you get together. It's your allness. And what do you mean by allness, Spence? I'm talking about that when it comes to your allness, it's not just that God has your Sunday mornings. It's not just that God has your Christmas service. It's not just that God has your Sunday nights. It's not just that God has your Wednesday. It's the fact that God has all of you. All of you. It's this idea that God has every single bit of you. What should mark and describe a believer in this church is our allness. All of us there in the text. All of us serving one God. We have this, uh, this, this living, uh, this, uh, this environment today where you not only have the buffet style Christians and they think they can take some of this and they think they can take some of that, but they also think that they can compartmentalize their life and that they can give God Sunday mornings and they can give the world Sunday afternoons. I'm not saying that you're not supposed to live in the world. I'm just saying that you need to understand that God should be over everything in the world. That God is over everything in your life. That all of you is in all of God. And yet we think we can compartmentalize stuff. We think that, well, you know what? I can watch this on the TV on Friday night and I can do something else on Sunday morning. We got teenagers today in this world today that they think they can talk one way at school and they can talk a different way on Wednesday night. They can act one way in school and they can act one way on Wednesday night. And you want to know where they learned it from? Us adults. 
because they see us losing our mind at the gas station when somebody won't pull out of the pump fast enough. They see us lose our mind on the phone when we're trying to deal with customer service and we're on hold and we're hitting that automated system and boy, we're just getting mad. And they see us unload on that telephone operator that she didn't do anything but come to work today because she needed a paycheck. But we're so frustrated by the time we finally get to talk to a real life person, we just unload on them. And it's not even their problem. It's our problem. But our children, our children see the way we talk and the way we act in our home or in our workplace or in our free time. And they see that and they see the, 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 the hypocrisy. And so you want to know why we have children and young people and young adults that are acting one way at school and another way at home. They're talking one way at school and another way at home. They're talking one way at home in another way at church because they're learning it from us adults because we're not the kind of people that God is in all of us. And Paul wants to make this application very clear that you're serving one God and this God is omnipresent. This God is everywhere at all times. You are serving this God on Sunday and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. You are serving this God at all times because we are all serving this one God. We are all under the authority of this one Father. He talks about there in verse 6. One God and Father of, of all. He's reminding us that every single one of us are under authority. You are not under authority to the government. You are not under authority to a person. You're not even under authority necessarily to a pastor, you're under the authority of God our Father. Which means we are all following the same set of rules. We're all serving for the same set of expectations. And we understand my allness is not just what I do today, it's my allness is what I do with my life. It's not a matter of compartmentalizing anything. Well, this will be okay here and this won't be okay over there. Here's some people talk about going on vacation. Well, I'm on vacation, so it's allowed. Just this last Thursday, you're sitting around the Thanksgiving table, and I, I bet you some of you heard, you know, I probably shouldn't eat this, but this is Thanksgiving, so it's okay. And the danger is we do that with our Christian life. We do that with our spiritual life. Well, I know I shouldn't do that, but I'll just do it this once. I know I shouldn't act like that, but I'll just do it this one time. We, we just think that we can just kind of pick and pull when we're going to indulge in the things that we know we shouldn't have any participation with. And Paul comes in, do you not understand that if God is your God and if Jesus is your Savior, that means that they're God and Savior all the time. And that means that you're a believer all the time. You're not just a believer on Sunday. You're not just a believer at church. You're not just a believer in front of other Christians. You are a believer all the time. So he talks about their allness. And he talks about one God and Father of all. Who is over all and through all and in all. In other words, he is saying that you are all together in Christ. That's what he's driving to. That's why he said there in, for ch in chapter 1 and chapter 2, he talks about who you were as a lost person, now who you are as a saved person. So he's drawing this contrasting position to say, this is for the saved people in the room. This is who you were and now who this is who you are. So he's coming back to application and saying, do you not understand that what brings you all together, what brings you all being worthy before God, what brings you all in your oneness and your allness is not your hobbies, not your vocations, not your likes or your dislikes, but it's Christ. But we have people today that they'll go to a church just because of the atmosphere. A lot of people today that'll go to the church just because of the hobbies of the other people in the church. A lot of people today that will go to church because of tradition. We'll have people today that will go to church because of a certain personality. They will go to church for a lot of different reasons that are based upon human thinking, but they won't go to church based upon who they are in Christ. 
And he says, your allness. Your allness should be what describes a believer. What does it mean to be a believer, preacher? What it means is that Jesus has all of you because you have all of him. How do I describe what it means to be a believer? What it means to be a believer, especially in fellowship, is that we are one, not because of our likes or our dislikes. We are one because we are all in one spirit. What does it mean to be a believer, Spence? What it means to be a believer is I recognize that Jesus died for me, so therefore I am going to give my life living for him. I want to be the kind of person when they look at me and they find out that I'm a Christian, they don't go, well, I didn't see that coming. I don't want them to be a surprise. I don't want them to have anything to say. Well, I thought he was supposed to be a, saint, a Christian. I thought, I thought he was supposed to be a follower. I thought he was supposed to be I don't want anything that somebody can look and say, if you are this, then why did you do that? We're living in a day and age, brothers and sisters, that we think that we can separate the two. We think we can be one thing here and we think we can be another thing there. And it comes back to what we describe as what it means to be a believer. So let me give you some, let me, give, let me just sum this up with just giving you some points. Giving you some points on how we can measure our growth. We've been talking about this whole idea of walking through Ephesians is to think about how it is that we grow in our Christian faith. How it is we grow individually and how it is that we grow corporately in our walk before God. So how it is, based upon this text this morning, how it is that we look and say, well, is there measurements? Is there marks that I am growing? Am I moving forward? If you're not growing, you're, you're dead or decaying. Nothing just stays stagnant for the rest of its life. And yet we have Christians in the world today that you got saved and you've never spiritually grown past the point of your initial salvation. You've never done anything else to move yourself along the spectrum and so you're the same spiritual age the day that you got saved. That's not definition of growth and life and living. So how do we measure? How do we know if we're growing or not? Well, the first statement I would give you is this. We are all walking towards something. We are all walking towards something. Paul begins there in this chapter by saying, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. He understands that everybody is walking somewhere. And either you are walking towards Christ or you're walking away from Christ. These influences that you have in your life, I think it was last Sunday when, when Donna put that in their bulletin that some things influences in your life, either influences will point you to Jesus or they'll point you away from Jesus. And you have habits, you have possessions, you have vocations, you have responsibilities, you have obligations, you have friends, you have relationships, you have things in your life and those things are either, either driving you towards Jesus or they're driving you away from Jesus. In the same way it comes with your spiritual walk. Either you're walking towards Christ or you're walking away from Christ. Every single one of us, we are all walking towards something. So maybe this morning you just need to take a little time. Maybe this morning you just need to take stock. Maybe this morning you just need to consider, where am I walking to? Am I walking towards him or am I walking away from him? The second reflection, the second point I'd give you is that unity requires presence and perseverance. Unity requires presence and perseverance. When he talks about, verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, he's talking to a church that's assembled. He's talking to a church that is gathered together to hear the letter being read. He's writing to a church that has all come together to participate. They're not coming out over a live stream. They're not coming out of a radio broadcast. They're not doing it on a tape delay. They're not doing it on a recording. Everybody is there. And one of the things about unity is it's hard to be unified if we're not together. 
it's hard for us to have that unified spirit if we're not present. It's hard for us to maintain that unity if all we are is divided. And oh, Satan. Oh, it's not an accident. You might think it's an accident. You might think it's coincidence. You might think it's just an anomaly. But I'm going to tell you, it's not an accident that Satan always has something for you to do that keeps you away from church. That keeps you out of church. That, that keeps those things from coming. There's always something that is coming. I, I didn't read the entire article, but I, I saw a little bit of a snippet of an article that there in Japan in the last six months, the rate of suicide over the loneliness and the isolation due to the COVID has killed more individuals in Japan than COVID itself. And they're saying, what a, what a travesty it is that you have people that are so isolated, that are so withdrawn from community, and their loneliness and their despair and their depression gets to the point that they choose to take their own life, and that you have more people dying from suicide that is attributed to the loneliness and the isolation of COVID than you actually have people dying from COVID. And they're saying, where are, where are we going to be at on this? Nobody wants somebody to die from suicide. Nobody wants somebody to die from COVID. But at some point, brothers and sisters, we need to understand that isolation isn't healthy for anyone. And, and Paul wants to make sure and let them understand that unity requires presence and perseverance. It requires presence for us to be unified. We have to be together. Perseverance means that when we come together, some of us are not heads. Some of us are knuckleheads. Some of us are in a good mood. Some of us are in a bad mood. Some of us say things we should say. Some of us say things we shouldn't say. We don't always get along. Sometimes you just have to grin and bear it and persevere. Not get mad. Go up the hill or go down the hill. You say, here I am. God, use me. And brothers and sisters, sometimes we need to understand that this unity, this unity amongst us requires presence or perseverance. And then there's this last one and we'll be done. There is only one God. There is only one God. Which, what I mean by that is that when he talks about here this oneness, this oneness, this oneness, this oneness, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father. He's talking about all these things as being only one God. And yet we are living in a day and age that we think we can divide worship. We think that we can spread worship around. I think that I can worship Abu Garcia on a Saturday. And I think I can worship Jesus Christ on a Sunday. I think that I can go worship Matthews on a Monday. And I think I can worship God on a Tuesday. I think that I can worship forward on a Wednesday and I think that I can worship God on a Thursday. I think that I can worship a TV show on this day and I can worship God on another day. And Paul is wanting us to remember there is only one God. The question is, is which God are we living for? Which God are we living in submission to? Which God has our lives? I wonder this morning if you were to describe what it means to be a believer today. I wonder if you were to describe what it looks like to be a believer. How would you describe what it means to be a believer of Jesus Christ this morning? Would you bow your heads with me?